the thing that the listeners are really going to miss out on is how many times you confuse Visicorp and Visicalc. Because I'm, you're going to cut all those out, but you really should release release the Visicorp cut. Welcome to Tech Tales. I'm Corbin Davenport. I'm Joe Fidua. And today we're talking about Visicalc. Are you are you aware of Visicalc, Joe? Uh, before you told me about it five minutes ago, no. Okay, that's good. So I'll start with this guy named Dan Bricklin, who started programming in Fortran, which is a very early programming language, in the mid-1960s while he was in high school. He attended college at MIT and received a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and computer science in 1973. Smart guy. Yeah. Then he worked at Digital Equipment Corporation as a project manager on the WPS8 word processor. And then he worked at a company called FastFax Corporation. A lot of corporations. But I guess he decided that he wasn't accomplished enough. So he went back to school in 1977 and received an MBA at Harvard in 1979. A little bit of an overachiever. I guess so. While he was at Harvard, he got the idea for VisiCalc. So supposedly, the legend says that he was watching a professor give a lecture with a paper spreadsheet, and the professor found an error in a single cell. And because this was you know, on paper, he had to change all the other values in every single other cell. Brooklyn saw this, and he thought that maybe some kind of pocket calculator with like a trackball could be used to create dynamic spreadsheets to solve this problem. And he asked a friend of his who was also uh, a longtime programmer named Bob Frankston to help him create this. So they start working on this program, and they meet this other guy named Dan Felistra, who is the founder of a early software publisher called Personal Software. And Dan takes an interest in this project now, Dan Bricklin originally wanted to create this piece of software for uh, a microcomputer that he worked on uh, in a previous job, but Dan convinced him to write it for the Apple II computer, which was new at the time, because Dan was impressed by the Apple II after Steve Jobs personally sold one to him. <laughs> so he already knew Steve Jobs and was like, hey, this computer's cool. So... I want to take a little bit of a detour and talk about the Apple II because its history is directly interconnected to VisiCalc's. So the Apple II was an 8-bit home computer released in June of 1977. It had an introductory price of $1,298, which adjusted for inflation in 2021 is $5,800. It's a bit of money. Yeah, it was very pricey. Uh, it had a MOS Technology 6502 processor clocked at a whopping 1.023 megahertz. And the cheapest model had 4,000 bytes of RAM. Not megabytes. <laughs> bytes. <laughs> 4,000 bytes. And this was also sort of before floppy disks became a thing, so the Apple II stored data on cassette tapes. 
although Apple eventually did release a five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive. And also the Apple II had no built-in operating system. And this was common of a lot of computers at the time. When you turn it on, it would boot straight to a version of the basic programming language called Integer Basic. And the idea is that you could buy software for the Apple II, or you know, if, if someone else made some, you could copy it with your cassette tape drive. But the, the intention was that most people would be writing their own simple programs, and that's how they would use their computer. It's really crazy to think that, like, I mean, when you just look at how people use computers now, and that was just like, they assumed at the time, like, oh, people are just making their own programs. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's totally different. So Dan Bricklin created a primitive demo of what would become VisiCalc in Integer Basic on an Apple II, the same one that was borrowed from personal software. And this early demo looked a lot like the final product. It had a set of rows and columns labeled with numbers and letters, exactly like every other spreadsheet program anyone's ever used. And each cell could contain data or formulas, and they could reference other cells using their names. The big difference between this and what would eventually come out was that he hadn't integrated scrolling yet. So you could only make a spreadsheet of what was visible on the computer screen when you turned it on. <laughs> so could you adjust the size of the cells? No. <laughs> oh, gosh. Another difference between this and the final product is that this early version allowed people to give cells nicknames. So, you know, if you had some formula and you've got the output, you could name that like, you know, quarter four sales. And then in another cell, you could say quarter four sales times something else. And it worked, but it was really easy for people to screw up with those nicknames. Mm. And also there wasn't enough room for longer names on these early computers. Just, you know, they couldn't display a lot of characters and it would have just become really complicated. So that was dropped. Even though this demo was pretty simple, Personal Software, the publisher, was very impressed with it. Personal Software actually offered jobs to both of the developers, but they decided that they wanted to create their own development company, and then they would just work with Personal Software. Mm -hmm. So in, this, in the same way that, you know, uh, like a great example of this today is games. Right. So that's pretty common now. So the two developers founded Software Arts Inc., which would then act as a developer house for VisiCalc. I know this is going to get confusing because the developer's company is called Software Arts and the publisher is called Personal Software. Could they have picked more generic names? <laughs> I know. That's I feel like a lot of these early companies just had like 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 the kinds of names they give evil companies in <laughs> yeah. sci-fi movies. Hey, like, what do we make? Uh well, we make personal software. Yeah, that's a great name. Go with that. <laughs> yeah. I work at Software Corp. <laughs> yeah. So, the developers and personal software work on an agreement where Dan Bricklin and Bob Frankston, who were the two people at Software Arts, each of those people would receive 37.5% of the revenue. 
and that was pretty generous for the time. Hmm. So it was, it was a pretty good deal. Yeah. Pretty for everyone involved. So development kept going on VisiCalc. This is when VisiCalc implemented support for Windows, so people could work on two different parts of the same spreadsheet at once. Uh, the developers also ran into some issues with the Apple II. One of the problems was the Apple II would sometimes skip letters if you were typing really fast. So VisiCalc had to add its own code to constantly record everything coming from the keyboard so it could save it and it wouldn't miss letters that the Apple II was missing. That's kind of a nightmare for a spreadsheet program. Yeah, yeah, which is why they had to do that because it's like I think people would be upset if someone missed a uh, a zero somewhere. Mm-hmm. Also at the time, if you were making software for the Apple II and you wanted to use the file system, you needed a license from Apple. But software arts didn't have a lot of money and personal software also didn't have a lot of money. So Bob Frankston reverse engineered the entire file system so they didn't have to pay for it. Wow. So, yeah, so Visical could, you know, load and save files from the Apple II file system, and they didn't have to pay Apple for the license, which is pretty funny. Genius. Another development issue they run into is Bob Frankston wasn't able to get Visical working on the cheapest Apple II systems because they just didn't have enough RAM. So, in the end, Visical would only be available for the more expensive Apple II with 32 kilobytes of RAM, which you never want to do as a as a developer because then that limits how many people can use and in this case buy your application. An already expensive computer. Right. So I I'm gonna send you a section of a paper that Dan Felistra wrote years later called The Creation and Destruction of VisiCalc. <laughs> a little dramatic there. So I will send you this and you can read it out for us. Oh boy. Dan proceeded to work out of many specifics of the design of the electronic blackboard, meeting with Bob, me, and certainly others. My role at this stage was that of the classical software product manager that most companies employ today. I was in close touch with the market as it was evolving in 1978 to 79. I also had the technical background to appreciate the development issues faced by Bob and Dan. Sitting in Frankston attic, We discussed many features, adding some and discarding others. I remember an episode where I pushed hard for general floating point number formats and scientific functions like EXP, log, and sign, arguing that even though we were aiming at a business market, scientists and engineers could also use the visible calculator, and they did. As the product evolved, I remember our own enthusiasm waxing and waning. There were times when when we said to each other, this tool will be so versatile that everyone with a PC will want to buy it. In other times when we said it's too general purpose and people won't see how they can use it, maybe no one will buy it. As it turned out, this was one of those rare moments in entrepreneurial venture when our unbridled optimism was fully justified. But our realization that the general purpose nature of VisiCalc could be a marketing problem motivated us early on to create numerous example worksheets that illustrated what VisiCalc could do. These weren't random examples. They were aimed at specific markets and applications, including budgeting and financial planning, inventory planning due to Bricklin, real estate analysis, insurance applications, and the like. We later created a self-running demo for VisiCalc, one of the first tools of its kind that cycled through a set of these example models. 
The self-running demo was used in hundreds of computer stores, helping both salespeople and their customers learn what this tool could do. We worked together on these things, not worrying about whose job it was. This is kind of a cool insight because it seems so often that the first piece of software or hardware to do a certain thing, a lot of times what happens is that people just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And they recognize that and they were like, all right, let's make specific examples of how to use this for this type of buyer and this type of buyer and this type of buyer. And it ended up working in the end. Yeah. I feel like that's super important, especially at at this time because just people just aren't in that mindset of, of using these sort of things. Yeah. Well, even just like computer adoption was still not Mm -hmm. super high or at least with microcomputers, like a lot of larger companies, they would have, you know, the IBM mainframes to do this kind of work, but microcomputers were still pretty new. So during this time, software arts, which were the two developers, were starting to become unhappy with the 35.7% royalty rate, even though that original rate was already higher than the industry average at the time, which was closer to 15 to 25%. Software Arts was talking to Microsoft and MicroPro at the time about a different project they were working on, and they wanted a 50% royalty rate. But supposedly no one took that deal. Finally, in November of 1979, VisiCalc was finally released for $100, and I will send you a demo video of VisiCalc running so you can get an idea of what it looks like. Oh boy. And you can you can paint a word picture for us. Wow, this is uh I, I don't know what I was expecting, but this is more <laughs> basic than I was expecting. Yeah, it's just a black screen and with green text. Like the columns uh, and everything is is green. It's it's just a grid of and you got your numbers on the left and the letters on the top and you can move between the cells and the cells aren't even like outlined either. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's just void. Yeah. (laughs) Your numbers are in the void. I mean, it seems to be working pretty well though. Oh, hearing some beeps, hearing some beeps, (laughs) got some sound effects. That's what Excel is missing is some, some beeps. Yeah, for sure. So I've got another snippet for you to read, and this is called VisiCalc Breaking the Personal Computer Software Bottleneck, and it was written by a guy named Ben Rosen for the Electronics Letter. In mainframes and mini computers, hardware developments have always outpaced those of software. This pattern is now being repeated in the nascent field of personal computers. Today, virtually the only use user of personal computers who is satisfied with the state of the software art is the hobbyist and he does all of this programming himself. But for the professional, the home computer user, the small businessman, and the educator, there is precious little software available that is practical, useful, universal, and reliable. True, lots of packages are being advertised and many are sold, but typically they are not fully debugged, not general purpose enough, not working completely, or sometimes totally worthless. Enter VisiCalc. What is about to come on the market is a new concept and software that could well go a long way towards fulfilling these aforementioned needs of professionals and alleviating their frustrations. VisiCalc, a program developed by Software Arts and marketed by Personal Software, was shown at our Personal Computer Forum in New Orleans in May and at the National Computer Conference in June. 
scheduled to go on sale in August at a price tentatively set at $100, VisiCalc could emerge as one of the bargains of our time. Though hard to describe in words, VisiCalc comes alive visually. In minutes, people who have never used a computer are writing and using programs. Although you are operating in plain English, the program is being executed in machine language. But as far as you're concerned, the entire procedure is software transparent. You simply write on this so-called electronic blackboard what you would like to do, and it does it. We believe that VisiCalc is so powerful, convenient, universal, simple to use, and reasonably priced that it could well become one of the largest selling personal computer programs ever. It's hard for us to imagine any professional user of a personal computer not owning and frequently using VisiCalc. Wow, what a glowing review. That guy was hyped for spreadsheets. Everybody's going to be using this, man. This goes back to what we already talked about of you were expected to write your own software. And Physicoc was, it was more than just a spreadsheet program at the time. It was like this idea of, oh, like I can make programs in this and I can do it without learning basic and I can do it without debugging my own programs and, and all these other issues that come up when you're trying to write your own software. I'm, I'm surprised by how he says $100 is such a good price, like such a bargain. Yeah. Computer software was more expensive back then, you know, along with the computers themselves. And that was also part of the reason why you wrote most of your own software. So you could cheap out and not buy as much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It pays to know how to make it yourself. So very quickly, VisiCalc becomes the killer app for the Apple II. Like, people go out and buy an Apple II just to run VisiCalc. That's amazing. Yeah. There were some reports that indicated more than 25% of the Apple II computers sold in 1979 were bought specifically for VisiCalc. That's really incredible, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, you know, people at home who wanted to use this for doing budgets and also just companies buying this because, you know, before this, if you needed to do a lot of advanced calculations, you had to do like a paper spreadsheet. You know, maybe you had a, some calculators with you, but some of it still had to be done by hand. Or if you were a larger corporation, maybe you had those fancy IBM mainframes that could do this for you or you could rent them. You hired someone to make software for you. Right. It's not too hard to see how this was popular, but it is a funny concept. Like the thing that drove the Apple II, and which in turn drove Apple to be a success, was a spreadsheet app. Yeah. I mean, it just really shows the, like we were talking about before, how people were just using computers so much differently at this time. Yeah. Because the Apple II was being sold so often for it. A lot of retailers just started bundling Apple IIs with PhysiCalc. So you go to the store and they'd, they'd sell you both of them, you know, just like, you know, you're buying a Nintendo Switch today and you get Mario Kart with it. Same thing. Right. By 1981, Bob Frankston and Dan Bricklin, the two developers, had made over $12 million in royalties from <laughs> oh VisiCalc. So they were, they were making bank. And uh, converted for inflation in 2021, that's $35 million. Pretty, pretty good. So, you know, they've got this hit on their hands and personal software wants to start porting this to other types of computers. They come out with VisiCalc for the Commodore PET, which was a precursor to the Commodore 64. 
they also made PhysiCalc for the Atari 800 computer and the Radio Shack TRS-80. And all of these are pretty popular microcomputers at this time. The one issue with porting PhysiCalc to other computers is that it was originally written in assembly code for the CPU in the Apple II, which was the 6502. So it wasn't that hard to port VisiCalc to other computers with that same chip, but it was a lot of work if it needed to be on a computer with something different. So at this time, computers with the first Intel processors are starting to show up, and VisiCalc doesn't really have a version for those computers for a while just because it's so much work and they're focusing on the Apple II and they're focusing on these other computers. And, you know, at this time, software arts and personal software are still pretty small companies, so they don't have a lot of resources. Also, at this time, personal software starts building up on the success of VisiCalc, and they start working on an entire family of software to go with this. The VisiCalc expanded universe. And all these had great names. Let me guess. Hold on, hold on, hold on. They all have Vizzy in the front, don't they? Oh, you're right. <laughs> so they had Visiplot and Visitrend for <laughs> graphics and statistical analysis. They had Visafile, which was a desktop database program. Their word processor was called VisaWord. Uh, they had VisaSchedule for project management. And they had Visalink and Visiterm for database access and terminal emulation. Wow. All of those were developed by different developers. Those weren't made by software arts. Those guys were still focused on, on the calculator. Even with all those other apps being sold, VisiCalc was still the most popular. And at one point, it was generating half the revenue of the entire Visa family of software. So VisiCalc, wow. was, it, was, it was still trucking. The heavy hitter, yeah. The cash cow. Yeah, the cash cow spreadsheet program. So this is when competition starts to really ramp up for VisiCalc. And the, the competition is helped by the fact that Software Arts isn't working on a lot of the changes that personal software asked for. Basically, personal software has been asking for certain features to be implemented, and Software Arts is kind of like, uh, well, we're working on this other thing. <laughs> I'm going to read a small snippet from that same Creation and Destruction of VisiCalc paper by Dan Flistra. He said, Adam Osborne called on me at Personal Software to see if we could provide VisiCalc for his to-be-announced portable computer, the Osborne PC. I was certainly intrigued with this idea, but Software Arts couldn't promise a version for the CPM system in the time frame that Adam needed, so Osborne turned to Scorsim, creators of SuperCalc, which was written for the 8080 processor and which didn't require a memory map display. Sorsim soon became the primary supplier of spreadsheets for CPM computers. So another competitor that shows up in 1982 is actually Microsoft Multiplan, which is a spreadsheet application that looks and works a lot like VisiCalc, but Microsoft created it in a way that allowed it to run on a bunch of computer platforms. Mm. So almost every computer at the time could run multiplan. It was available for the Apple II, same as VisiCalc. It was available for the Commodore 64, and it was available for all these CPM computers that had Intel chips in them. Microsoft actually 
ran advertisements in popular magazines with the headline, VisiCalc was a swell idea for then, Multiplan is a great idea for now. Oh boy, shots fired. <laughs> yeah. So Multiplan is more technically impressive than VisiCalc, but it was outsold by competitors for most of the time it was available. And it was finally replaced in 1985 with the first version of Excel. I was wondering when we'd hear the name Excel. Yeah. When, when is Excel being introduced into the VisiCalc universe? Mm -hmm. That's like Thanos. <laughs> another, another competitor that shows up in 1983 was Lotus123. And it was released for the IBM PC and other computers that were running Microsoft DOS. The company that was making this, Lotus, was founded by Mitchell Kapoor. This is a guy who previously developed Visiplot and Visitrend for personal software. And personal software paid him $1.2 million to buy the full rights to both programs. Wow. And Mitchell was like, okay, that sounds good. He took that $1.2 million and formed the Lotus Development Corporation to create Lotus 123. So, yeah. So, personal software sort of directly funded this effort. So, Lotus 123 functioned a lot like VisiCalc, but it could handle larger spreadsheets because it was made for the IBM PC, which had a 80-column display mode and additional memory. Oh, boy. 80 columns. Yeah. Well, that's that's 80 columns of text, not 80 columns of spreadsheet. Oh. So you could have like 80 characters. Wow, you got me all excited. From start that. to... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so you have 80 characters on the screen, but it was still more than the Apple II could do. So it was an improvement from that. So you could have more spreadsheet on your screen and you could have more stuff in your spreadsheet without the computer slowing down or crashing. And even though VisiCalc by this point had been released for the IBM PC and other platforms that had Intel chips, uh, VisiCalc only used 64K of the IBM PC's 256K of memory. So it wasn't, it was available for the PC, but it wasn't using it as well as Lotus 123. Hmm. And also Lotus 123 could open files created with VisiCalc, which helped a lot. So in almost the same way that VisiCalc was this killer app for the Apple II, Lotus 123 becomes the really popular application for the IBM PC. And it helps really drive that platform to be a success. By this point, Personal Software, which is the company publishing VisiCalc, not the one developing, renames itself to VisiCorp, which is a stupid name, but I appreciate it because it makes the rest of this story easier. <laughs> We don't have two companies with software in the name. And also VisiCalc, I'm sorry, <laughs> Visic VisiCorp. Yeah, really cleared things up. Yeah. <laughs> this newly renamed company, VisiCorp, begins working on a new suite of applications to replace the entire Visa family. And this effort's called VisiOn. VisiOn was a full graphical desktop environment with its own suite of applications, including a word processor, business graphics program, database program, and, of course, spreadsheet. Dan Flistra, who was the founder of VisiCorp and, and wrote those snippets we've read already, actually believes that early demonstrations of VisiOn prompted Bill Gates to start development of Windows at Microsoft. 
I don't know mm. if that's true, but it was like the same kind of vibe. Like this is a desktop that would run on your computer. And then inside the desktop would be these special apps that all kind of work the same and you could move stuff between them. So VisiCorp's working on this. They ask Software Arts to develop a spreadsheet program for Vision because obviously they've done a great job with VisiCalc. But Software Arts said no. So VisiCorp's own engineers start working on a spreadsheet software for this new platform, and they call it Vision Calc. The application they made actually exceeded VisiCalc in functionality. So VisiCorp's working on this new desktop platform thing. But in September 1983, they actually decide to sue Software Arts. I've got another section from that paper by Dan Flistra for you to read, Joe. Okay. <clears throat> I know for certain that while we were certainly felt that Software Arts had breached our publishing agreement by not delivering enhancements and new features for VisiCalp, VisiCorp wasn't even considering the idea of filing a lawsuit until we received an in-person message from an officer of Software Arts that Software Arts was going to sue VisiCorp to block the first shipment of Visaon. This news was the equivalent of a thermonuclear first strike to us. We had invested several years and more than $10 million in Visaon, trying to leapfrog the competition that had already surpassed VisiCalc and reclaim market leadership. Software Arts' threat to block the shipment of Visaon was perceived as a threat to our very survival. We leaned heavily on our attorneys, whose advice was, if there's going to be a lawsuit anyway, it's better to go first with a complaint for breach. And so the complaint was prepared and filed. On the day the lawsuit was filed, I paced for hours, wondering how Bricklin and Frankson would respond. Were they dead set on the idea of suing us to block shipment of Visaon? Would they understand that our move was defensive? Would they call and ask whether the matter could be resolved out of court, as we hoped? I very much wanted to call Bricklin myself at that moment, to clearly communicate our concerns and intentions. I talked to our in-house attorney, Valerie McEnroy, about this idea, but she was vigorously opposed to it. As a lawyer concerned with our litigation tactics, she felt that such a call would be a serious mistake. Others at VisiCorp also opposed the idea, so I ultimately dropped it. When, much later, I explained our reasons for filing to Dan Bricklin, he expressed much surprise. He denied that Software Arts planned to sue the block of shipment of Visaon and expressed disbelief that Licklitter had said the things he had heard. So in retrospect, the call that my gut instinct told me to make should have been made. This was ultimately my fault. I was chairman of Visicor and could have made the call despite our attorneys and other objections, but I chose not to do so, and Brooklyn evidently chose not to call me. So this lawsuit is very complicated. Visicorp filed a lawsuit ahead of what they thought would be legal action from Software Arts. But it turns out Software Arts probably wasn't intending to do that. So it was a little bit of an egg on the face moment. Even with this lawsuit ongoing, VisiCalc is still selling pretty well. Like it's got some competition now, but it's been popular for so long that it's still selling pretty well. It's the OG. Exactly. And it still works. So even though there were other spreadsheet tools, they all still kind of work the same. However, this changes in 1984 when Software Arts announced that it would break its contract with VisiCorp and start selling VisiCalc itself. So, you know, going back to that original agreement between the two companies, Software Arts made VisiCalc and VisiCorp would distribute it. They were now breaking that agreement. This is when Software Arts said it would sell VisiCalc direct to buyers 
for $99. Now at this point, Visicoc was sold in stores for $200 and Visicorp got $120 of that profit. So they when did they raise the price? Because wasn't it 100 It was first? $100 at first. I don't know when they raised it. But yeah, at, at this point, it was $200 in stores. And so Software Arts saying that it would sell it directly for $100 was noteworthy. They announced this by sending press releases to uh, magazines and newspapers that covered the PC industry. And the title of their press release was called Software Wars, Battle Erupts Between the Author and Publisher of VisiCalc, which sounds very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Like th- there was this whole PR campaign going on from Software Arts for this. They also paid for uh, full-page newspaper ads for its version of VisiCalc. This almost in a way reminds me of what Epic Games did with Apple and Google. Mm, yeah. You know, they they updated their Fortnite game to bypass the restrictions in Apple and Google's app stores. And of course they knew when they did that that it would get Fortnite removed. So when it got Fortnite removed, they started this big marketing push of we're being treated unfairly. Uh, they made that mm-hmm. uh, advertisement video that was a parody of Apple's 1984 ad. They were able to change the narrative to be in their favor. And that's sort of what software arts was going for. They were like, you know, we're not going to let Visicorp steal all your money. We're giving it to you for half the cost. I didn't think that researching this, I would, that there would be such similarities between Fortnite and a spreadsheet application from the early eighties. <laughs> Hashtag free Visicalc. Yeah. This move didn't go over well for Software Arts and Visicalc because it basically tanked the remaining reputation of Visicalc. So because Software Arts was now selling its own slightly different version of Visicalc, there were now two versions being sold at any given time. So people were confused about which one to buy. And because... Up to this point, VisiCalc was mostly sold through computer dealers. Most of those computer dealers just started selling Lotus 123 instead, just because everyone was confused. And at this point, Lotus was the better product anyway. Yeah. Also, at this point, people really didn't buy software direct from the people who were making it. They would go to the computer dealers and physical stores, and they would be the ones selling, and you can buy it from there. No one was ordering spreadsheet programs through the mail. Software Arts really wasn't able to sell its version of VisiCalc well. So this basically resulted in VisiCalc dying. So finally, in September of 1984, the lawsuit between VisiCorp and Software Arts was settled out of court. This is when VisiCorp gave up the rights to VisiCalc completely, and they paid Software Arts around $500,000 in royalties However, the settlement did allow Visicorp to keep the Visa trademark, so they could keep all of their confusing other name products, and they didn't have to rename them. But, of course, by this point, Visicoc was basically dead. 
because of all the nonsense from the lawsuit and the different versions and increased competition, mm -hmm. especially from Lotus. That was the big one by this point. Just to give you an idea for how quickly Visicalc died, in January of 1983, monthly sales of copies of Visicalc were 39,000. But by December 1983, when the lawsuit was settled, that dropped to 5,700. Yeah, wow. so like almost a fourth of what it was just to be at the start of the year. That's quite a sharp decline. So in June of 1985, a little bit later, Software Arts, who now had the rights to VisiCalc, actually just sold VisiCalc and some other assets they had to, guess who? Microsoft? No, it was Lotus. Oh. They sold their product to their competitor. And of course, this as happens. Yeah. And of course, as soon as the acquisition was done, Lotus discontinues VisiCalc because it's competition or it was competition and they have their own better thing. However, Lotus did give a deal to people who own VisiCalc, where if you had VisiCalc for the IBM PC, you could trade it in to get a copy of Lotus at a discounted price. So that was nice of them, I guess. Yeah. We, we shut down your th the thing you liked, buy our new thing for slightly less money. We're still going to charge you, but... Uh... So Software Arts sold off most of its valuable assets to Lotus. Meanwhile, Visicorp wasn't doing too well. Visicorp's president ended up resigning, which returned control of the company to Dan Felistra. Visicorp started selling off some of its assets and laying off employees. And it was eventually merged with a different computer company called Paladin Software. A lot of the times when something like this happens, they merge the name of the two companies. But when these two companies merged, they just kept it as Paladin Software because the Visa name had just been damaged beyond repair <laughs> at this point. It wow. was no one wanted it. And they named all those programs. Yeah. <laughs> so a little bit later... In April of 1987, Software Arts filed a lawsuit against Lotus. The lawsuit was focused on Lotus initially copying VisiCalc. And they pointed out that Lotus had the same commands as uh, VisiCalc. But Lotus owned VisiCalc, though. So th they were trying to go after like the initial release of Lotus copied VisiCalc with the same commands and the same functions and basically the same appearance. Also, by this point, Lotus itself was suing two other companies, Paperback Software and Mosaic Software, for also creating similar spreadsheet applications. So there was just a, a, a web of software companies suing each other for making clones of each other. Yeah. And Software Arts eventually loses their lawsuit against Lotus. U.S. District Judge Robert E. Keaton dismissed the copyright infringement claims in November of 1988, basically saying that Software Arts gave up its right to sue when it sold its stuff to Lotus in 1985, and eventually all the other charges against Lotus were dismissed in March of 1989, which included breach of contract, misappropriation of trade secrets, and confidential secrets and unjust enrichment. So software arts didn't get anywhere by suing Lotus, basically. That was probably their Hail Mary anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, because at this point, like they they didn't even have anything. You know, they'd already sold Visicalc and mm-hmm. most of the most of their other projects. So in the end, Visicalc died a horrible death. Software Arts did a frivolous lawsuit, <laughs> and <laughs> Visicorp mostly collapsed and was merged with another company that wanted nothing to do with the Visa name. So where did uh where did where did all, like Bricklin and and what was his name Frankston or something? Where did those original three people end up? None of them really worked on anything huge after this point. I know Dan Bricklin worked at other software companies after this point. I believe he worked on a he worked at a company that was making some software for the Apple Newton. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they stayed in the industry, but like for a while, uh, Dan Flistra didn't talk about this at all. Like he just wanted nothing to do with this whole situation. And then eventually, um, in the early 2000s, he wrote that long paper thing of we've read from a couple times where it's like his take of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's really the end of Visicalc. Yeah, so kind of a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, I just pulled up Lotus Software Wikipedia page and the official website link just goes to ibm's website now. <laughs> yeah because ibm bought him <laughs> yeah it's really interesting how small things like that like you would think it'd be a small thing like oh it's just a spreadsheet yeah program can have such huge impacts yeah and it's especially funny how so many of these early stories are just like oh yeah i borrowed and i borrowed a computer and wrote this app for it and then it became the foundation of modern personal computers <laughs> It really is. I mean, I never use spreadsheets. I don't know about you, but like I never use spreadsheets. So the whole idea of all this drama behind spreadsheet (laughs) programs is, is just fascinating to me.